Matthew, chapter 16, and verses 13 to 28. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Forgiving can often be a difficult thing for a couple of reasons, I suppose. I mean, it's, it's hard to sometimes ask for forgiveness because you know that that means you have to admit that you've done the wrong thing, that you've made the mistake. Or it can sometimes be hard to be willing to forgive people. Uh, There are plenty of people who would prefer to bear a grudge rather than forgive. They'd rather hold on to their anger. I'm sure you've seen this even in families that are torn apart because of someone's refusal to forgive or a refusal to admit that they were wrong with what happened. It may even be your experience in your family. I know of a family where Christmas for quite a number of years was disrupted because two of the sisters in this family refused to speak to each other. They would not attend an event where they knew the other one would be there. 
They couldn't even remember why they were arguing. They couldn't even remember what the issue was, but they just knew that they would not be in the same room as that person. But the remarkable thing is, people seem to expect that God should be forgiving, don't they? They seem to think that God should just be able to forgive everybody. I mean, why can't God just do that? We can't forgive people, but we think God should be able to. The question can come from people who are hopeless at forgiving themselves, but want to try and project onto God that he should be the forgiver of all. Well, forgiveness is really what lies at the heart of this whole section that we're looking at today. But I want you to pick it up at Matthew chapter 16, the passage that we've just had read for us, starting at verse number 13. This is a kind of a turning point in Matthew's gospel, and in fact in Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel as well. All three of them mention this event. Saw a funny video during the week. Um, uh, you probably know Adele, the, the British singer. They had a, the BBC ran a competition to find um, to find an Adele. Uh, they got Adele impersonators to come along and audition in a theatre in London, and one of them was the real Adele. Uh, they got some makeup and they changed the way that she looked and changed her hair. But she went along to audition to be Adele. It was quite funny to watch it, hearing all of these women sing. They had spectacular voices. It was truly wonderful. But then the real Adele came out and sang. And as soon as she started to sing, every single one of them recognised who it was. I mean, there was no doubt that this was the real Adele who is singing before them. Well, in the episode that we've got here, there's a kind of a recognition of who Jesus is not quite as clear as these women have had about the real Adele, but it's that moment where the disciples finally spit out who they think Jesus is. The words will finally come from their mouths. Now, we're not exactly sure how long Jesus had been with his disciples at this point, but it's pretty safe to assume that it's probably been for a couple of years. The disciples have seen a lot, they've heard him teach, they've seen him walk on water, feed thousands of people, they've seen him heal and cast out demons. And as they're walking along the road, way up north near Caesarea Philippi, way up beyond the Sea of Galilee and a long, long way from Jerusalem, as he's talking with them, he asks them the question. Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now that's the simple question. There's no personal investment with this question. You're just being asked what other people's opinions are. So they come out with some answers. They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. That's the easy question. And then he hits them with the hard question. What about you? Who do you say I am? Now, the passage doesn't say it, but I kind of get the impression that it would have all gone quiet at that moment until Peter spoke up and Peter says in verse 16 you are the Christ the son of the living God nailed it 100% correct he's joined the dots he's understood the clues he sees what they're all pointing to that's who Jesus is he's the Messiah the saviour that God has sent into the world now, what makes this the turning point is not just that they've recognised who Jesus is, 
It's the turning point because now Jesus can start to talk to them about what he's come to do. See, those miracles were great and they testify to who he is, but that's not what he's come to do. Otherwise, he would have just spent more time doing miracles or more time simply teaching. But Jesus knows that he has come to do something important. And have a look at what it says. Verse 21, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the first third day raised to life. See, now that they understand who he is, they can begin to understand what he's come to do. This isn't going to be easy for them to get their head around. And Peter shows that while they may have some idea of who Jesus is, it's going to take some time for them to get on board and recognise what it is that he's come to do. When Peter hears Jesus talking about getting arrested and dying, he pulls him aside for a little stern talk because as far as Peter's concerned, that is not going to happen. There is a firm rebuke to Peter from Jesus. He says, get behind me, Satan. Now, it's not that he thinks that Peter is Satan, but do you remember right back at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel? Jesus in the wilderness, being tempted by Satan not to go through with this mission? Well, that's effectively what Peter's saying now. We're not going to let you die on the cross. We're not going to let you get arrested. And even though he didn't know it, he's effectively trying to do the same thing that Satan had already done, trying to stop Jesus from going through with the mission. Now, the event that follows this In all of the Gospels, they put these two events together because they fit together, importantly. We move on to chapter 17. One of the great coups in advertising is to be able to get some celebrity to be able to promote your product. So if you can get Brad Pitt to sell your watches or Charlize Theron to sell your perfume, then you know you're on a winner. Recognisable faces, trusted people. And a royal warrant is, is another great way that marketers like to be able to sell their products. Um, Twinings love to be able to boast that they, uh, they are by appointment to the Queen of England. And did you know that when the Queen reaches for a bottle of Worcestershire sauce, and I can imagine she'd do that quite regularly, it's Lee and Perrins that she's actually looking for. By appointment to the Queen. See, marketers know that if they can get that, that's going to be a selling point. The endorsement of the Queen of England is a significant thing, but have a look at the endorsement that we see here in Matthew chapter 17. Jesus Jesus has gone up on top of a mountain, and please note that detail because it's a significant part of the story. He's gone up on top of a mountain with three disciples, just three, John, James and Peter, the one who kind of gets who Jesus is, but not really. Jesus takes them up onto this high mountain and then it says that Peter, that Jesus transforms, changes his appearance. We're not exactly sure what that means, but we're told that his face shone and the clothes that he was wearing became brilliant white. Now, as if that isn't already strange enough, then Moses and Elijah appear and they're talking with Jesus. I'm sure that there are a a few people here this morning who have had that experience of when you meet someone famous and you have to say some words, 
the words that come out of your mouth, they're just stupid. Like, you're not even sure why you said that. Uh, uh, please don't let me be the only one here who's had that experience. Has anyone else had something like that? Yeah. You, you just blurt out these words and then afterwards you think, that must just make me look so dumb. I think Peter had that moment in verse 4. When he sees Jesus talking with Moses and Elijah, he says, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. He wants to organise a sleepover. Isn't that cute? You've got to love the guy, haven't you? He wants to set up tents so that they can stay up there for the night. But why is it Moses and Elijah who appear there? Why those two Old Testament characters? I mean, wouldn't Abraham and King David have been better, more impressive endorsements? I mean, Abraham's where this whole thing began, the promises that God made that he was going to have his people, that he blessed them. And King David's the, the great king that Jesus has come in his line. Why Moses and Elijah? What is it that these two men have in common? Well, if you know your Old Testament, they do have something in common. They lived hundreds of years apart, but what they have in common is that during their lifetime, they both met with God on top of a high mountain. Both of them went up onto a mount and met face-to-face, so to speak, with God. They spoke with God on the mountain. So do you see where this is going? Here we have Moses and Elijah together on top of a mountain and they're talking to Jesus. They're face to face with Jesus, the man who is God. Now this episode doesn't take place for Moses and Elijah's benefit. It certainly doesn't take place for Jesus' benefit. This is for the benefit of the disciples. This is being done for their sake and for our sake, dare I say. That's why all three gospel writers want to record it for us. Just in case you're still wondering, Jesus makes it crystal clear that he is God. Now, don't get me wrong. This is not a fact that's easy for the disciples or even for us to get our head around. It took the disciples and the early church quite a long time to actually understand that idea that Jesus is, in fact, God. Put yourself in the shoes of Peter, James and John. You've been travelling with this guy. You've been fishing with this guy. You've been walking with him. You've been eating with him. You've seen him every day for such a long time. And now you realise that you've been talking with God. But it's important that they understand exactly who Jesus is so that they can understand what Jesus has come to do. And just in case all of this isn't enough, there's one final endorsement. Verse 5 of chapter 17. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. That's some kind of endorsement. God speaking from heaven. Jesus has come to bring forgiveness and he's come to do that through his death on the cross. And he's able to do that because he is God. Can I get you to turn to Matthew chapter 18? Jumping over, 
Jesus has been talking with his disciples about how to deal with it when someone does the wrong thing by you, when someone sins against you. And the strategy Jesus outlines has a few steps to it. Uh, He tells them that, first of all, if someone's done the wrong thing by you, you need to go and speak to that person. Sad, isn't it, that uh, for most people, uh, the, the last person that you speak to is the person that you feel has wronged you. You speak to everybody else about it before you go and speak to them. Uh, when I was a student minister at a church, we'd just started at this new church, and one of the ladies from church invited Debbie and I to come and have lunch. We thought that was lovely. It wasn't until we got there that we realised that she just wanted to tell us everything she hated about the minister in the church. Uh, and, and all of the things that he had apparently done to offend her, the, the things that she didn't like. Uh, we saw the minister later on that afternoon and thought we should at least mention something. We said we'd been to this person's place and, and um, she obviously had some issues. A- and he gave me some great advice. He said, next time someone says something like that to you, can you do two things? First thing you need to say is, you obviously feel really strongly about these issues. And then the second thing you need to say is, you need to go and speak to the minister, not to me. Jesus says that if someone offends you, go and talk to them. Second step is, if they don't listen to you, then take someone along with you. And a good suggestion would be, take someone along with you who they may well respect. Third step is the really tough one and one that churches are reluctant to take. But if there's an issue that's blown up that can't be resolved, then you may need to involve others from within the life of the church in that process. Now, it's after talking about all of that stuff about sin and forgiveness that Peter comes to Jesus with what he thinks is a pretty good question. And he says, how many times, verse number 21, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? He thinks seven times would be a good number. And I'm going to guess that most of us would probably vote with him on that. Seven. I mean, that's pretty reasonable, isn't it? They do the wrong thing by you, you forgive them. They do the wrong thing again, you forgive them. Seven times sounds like a pretty reasonable number. Jesus says, tell you what, take your seven, multiply it by 70. Now, don't misunderstand Jesus. Jesus, he's using hyperbole here, okay? He's not saying 490 times. I I shared a house with a few other guys not long after I became a Christian and I did something to upset one of the guys in the house. I went to him and I said, look, I'm really sorry that I did that. He said, that's okay, that leaves 489. Now, that's not what Jesus is talking about here, okay? So while the shock of that 490 number is still ringing in Peter's ears, he tells them about a king who decided to collect on what he was owed. Now, I don't know why the NIV actually uses the word gold in there, because a talent is not actually gold. It was a silver measure back in the Roman Empire. And we're told that there is a man who owes the king 10,000 talents, 10,000 little silver ingots that would have weighed about 750 ounces per ingot. Now, don't you worry about doing the maths, I'll show you. One talent is 750 ounces of silver. 750 ounces times 10,000 talents. We're now up to 7.5 million ounces of silver. Checked on the metals exchange. Um, it's actually gone quite down, down quite significantly, silver at the moment. It's only selling at $21.46 an ounce uh, Australian. But that means that 7.5 million ounces by $21.46, this man owes $160 million or thereabouts. $160 million. There is no way in the world 
he is ever going to be able to repay that amount of money. So the king ordered that everything that the man owned be sold so that he could at least recoup some of his money, which he was completely entitled to do. The man pleaded with the king and he promised that he would pay back everything that he owed and in response to his pleading, the king takes this extraordinary step. He has pity on the man and he cancels the whole debt. Just says, you know what? Forget about it. This is extraordinary that someone would do this. But the story doesn't end there. The man walks out of the palace, as you can imagine, feeling rather pleased that he's been wiped of that debt of $160 million. He steps out of the palace and finds a man who owes him $250. He grabs him and insists that the money be paid back. The friend pleads with him. He promises that he'll pay back. In fact, it's exactly the same words that this man had just used with the king not a few minutes before, but he refuses to forgive him. Now, the point Jesus is making is rather simple. We are the $160 million people. Jesus is about to die on the cross so that that debt can be wiped for you. I saw one of those crazy news stories a few years ago about a man in the United States who'd won the lottery He'd won $60 million. Now, but the story wasn't about him having won the $60 million in the lottery. The story was about him refusing to give any money to his ex-wife to support their 14-year-old daughter. The ex-wife wasn't asking for a sports car or a house down by the beach. She was asking for money to buy school books and shoes for his 14-year-old daughter. You cannot believe that someone could be that rich and that stingy and nasty at the same time. We have been given and been forgiven an enormous debt. So what should we be like when it comes to forgiving others? Do you find it hard to forgive others? You're one of those people who would rather hold a grudge. Do you really understand what God was willing to do for you? Forgiveness is not some nice characteristic that we can display from time to time if we feel that it suits us. It stands at the very heart of what Jesus has come to do. See, that's what this whole section is about. Jesus, who comes into this world, who is God, who is willing to go to Jerusalem, be arrested by the elders and the chief priests, and put to death on a cross to pay the penalty for our sin, to wipe away the debt that we owed. If we know that we are forgiven people, if we know how costly it was for God to do that, then forgiveness ought to be something that we're pretty good at. And if you're not good at it, then you'd better start working harder and asking God to help you. Keep remembering what God has done for you. Keep remembering the price that Jesus paid and keep letting that shape you in your dealing with others. And keep letting that make you a more forgiving person.